PRI's The World is made possible by Portland Valley Brewing, located on South First Avenue and Halliday in Pocatello, offering an eclectic selection of food, beer, wine, and live entertainment Monday through Saturday. Portland Valley Brewing, now on Facebook and Twitter. KISU Pocatello, Idaho Falls. Coming up this hour, it's the City Club of Idaho Falls with guest Jamie Bulmer. This City Club Forum was recorded on September 23rd at the Benyon Student Union Building in Idaho Falls. To introduce today's guest, here's Forum Moderator Dr. David Adler. As you all know, Idaho, like, like its neighbors and many states across the nation in the past 18 months or so, has been engulfed by deep-seated controversy involving issues surrounding education in our public schools, including such issues as quality as well as funding issues. And of course, the convulsions here in the state have generated an effort now to repeal at the next election on the ballot some of those initiatives introduced by Tom Luna, enacted by the Idaho legislature and signed into law by Governor Otter, and so Idahoans will continue to discuss and debate the number of interesting and controversial issues surrounding education in our public schools. Today, the City Club is very pleased to be able to bring to our podium one of the nation's most acclaimed speakers and experts on the plight of public schools. Mr. Jamie Vollmer, who is president of Vollmer Incorporated, which is a public advocacy firm for education for our nation's public schools, has written a best-selling book on education. We happen to have a couple of copies left, only one or two, and the price has just gone up in the last 10 minutes as a result. Schools can't do it alone. Building public support for America's public schools He came to this project uh, in an interesting way. Initially, he worked as a lawyer in the law firm in Washington, D.C. of Congressman William Kramer, and then left to become in-house counsel for the great Midwestern ice cream company in Iowa, which, by the way, People magazine heralded as producing the world's best ice cream. And Then he went on to become president of that firm. He was involved in education uh, at a number of levels, but was one of uh, a, uh, and this happens often, one of those early critics of public education, faulting the process and the nature of it, and then became involved in a very serious way by organizing in Iowa, the Iowa Board of Education and Business Review, a roundtable, And then he shortly became president of that group a few years later, and then became steeped in the education problems confronting our nation and became a member of the National Board of the PTA. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a distinguished author with us today who's produced a number of videos, lectures nationwide. He earned his bachelor's degree at Penn State University, a law degree at Catholic University, He brings wonderful credentials to address these great problems. Please welcome to our podium, Mr. Jamie Vollmer. Hi, folks. Thanks so much for coming. As has been mentioned, a beautiful, gorgeous eastern Idaho day. I'm sure it's exactly like this in January. Um, I have a short period of time to communicate a fair number of ideas. Uh, Having said that, this is the seventh speech I've given since 7 o'clock yesterday morning. 
I'm inclined just to take questions now. And it is also, by the way, I'm halfway through a 45-city tour uh, between the end, the beginning of August and the beginning of December, but I get to go home tonight and sleep in my own bed for the next three days. So I'm very relaxed. And yet, the topic we have to address, we have come to a place in American history where the unfoldment of the full potential of every child has never been more important. The fact of the matter is, for generations, we have said, oh, educating our kids, that's what's really important in Idaho and in every other state, that's what's important. In fact, it wasn't important. It was important to educate a small handful of young people because very few jobs actually required people to have a decent education. I have joked repeatedly that I got out of high school in the 60s and I went right into a factory and nobody ever asked me to think in that factory. I postponed college to make some money. I made excellent money, but I was actively discouraged from thinking. I was told by the shop foreman, kid, nobody told you you were paid to think. We're management. We think. You do as you're told. The fact is that in that halcyon year of my graduation, 77% of the workers in America were unskilled or semi-skilled workers. I'm gonna say it again, it's a very important statistic. 77% of all the workers in America making enough money to gain entrance into the mainstream of American society, 77% were unskilled or semi-skilled. They worked in fields, they worked in mines, they worked in factories and mills, and mom and pop shops. In the course of my lifetime, that number has gone from 77%, according to the Federal Bureau of Labor Statistics, to 13%. 13% of the jobs that pay a decent wage for kids now exiting their education system are available for low-skilled or semi-skilled. My problem, I would argue that it's everyone's problem, is that we have school systems across America. I am not picking on Idaho Falls. I'm not picking on Idaho. We have school systems across America that were designed for the old economy. I could make the case to anyone you want to bring into the high school auditorium that the schools in Idaho Falls have never done a better job than they're doing right now. I know some of you don't believe that. Some of you are convinced if we could just go back to the schools that we used to have, everything would be fine. I argue that those people who make that claim are suffering from a debilitating mental disease. I have identified this mental disease and named it, because clearly I'm qualified to measure and name mental diseases. I call it nostesia. Nostesia. Please, say it after me. Nostesia. 50% nostalgia, 50% amnesia. Nostesia. People are convinced that it used to be better. If we could just have the schools we used to have here in Idaho Falls, everything would be great. Because I'm a bit of a wise guy, I am inclined to go, yeah, what year would that be, sir? Oh, 1955. Those are the really good schools around here. The dropout rate in Idaho in 1955 was 50%. Oh, no, you've got to go back to the 20s, I guess, for the really good schools. 
The dropout rate in Idaho in the 20s was 80%. I'm not exactly sure what the rate is right now here in this particular district, but I would be shocked if it was any higher than low double digits, probably single digits. The problem is not that we're not doing a good job of what the system has been designed to do. Your teachers, your administrators, they're doing a better job than any previous generation of their peers. The problem is that society around schools has so dramatically changed as evidenced by that one statistic of semi-skilled and unskilled workers, and the schools have not kept up. As a matter of fact, to put it in a bumper sticker, your schools are doing a better job now than they've ever done to prepare children to succeed in 1960. That's the rub. Not that they're not doing a good job. As a matter of fact, I'll put a fine point on it. For anyone who would say the people who work inside your schools are lazy or they don't care, they're not working hard, they're not committed, that is a nauseating concept to me. I have spent hundreds of hours inside of America's public schools, and I'll tell you what happened on August 29th here in this district. The kids all flowed back into the buildings, and from that second, 40 hours a week for most of your educators was nothing. 50 hours, 60 hours is routine for the vast majority of the people that you pay to educate your children. Not only is the work that onerous, think about the the audience that they address. This is the most demanding, distracted, diverse cohort of students the world has ever seen. Many of these children are victims of a popular culture that has assaulted their physiologies, fractured their attention spans, and given them, and with all due respect, some of their parents a dangerously overdeveloped sense of entitlement. No generation of educators in the history of the world has ever faced the challenges that these people face today. What we have to do is nothing less than recreate the way children are educated in America's schools. It has to be rethought. One of my biggest problems in the introduction, what was taking place in the state capitol was mentioned. It's taking place in state capitals all across America and in Washington, D.C. Although this is an interesting day for all of us to come together. I don't know if you watched today's news. The president basically said no child left behind is dead that it's over, that our long national nightmare, we're awake. Uh, major things are going to change. We're going to see major restructuring of schools. And here's the key point of my talk. Not because it's the right thing to do for these children, although it is. We're going to see and must see major restructuring of the way we educate the young people of the state, because it's important to us. It's important to those of us who don't have children in school. It turns out that the vast majority of the taxpayers in Idaho don't have kids in the system anymore. Way more than 75% of the folks who pay have long since had someone in the schools themselves. And so what we see is just when we get to this place, where we need to restructure our schools for the purpose of unfolding the full potential of every child. The days in which a small handful 
of children needed to be well-educated. Those days are gone. All students need to be prepared for education beyond high school when they graduate. And just when we get to this place where we find that all students must be taught the high levels and as a result, we must restructure the system, what we see is that there's a significant portion of the population of Idaho that are turning their backs on public education. There's quantifiable signs that that historical commitment to public schools has waned. Why? Well, I mentioned in passing one of them, making sure I don't focus my eyes on any individual at this point. You're getting old. The state of Idaho is one of those states among many, including, by the way, my adopted state of Iowa, where I have lived for 26 years, where the population is quite elderly. And so what's happening? Folks that are older, many of them on a fixed income, they're saying, hey, been there, done that. I I paid for my kids. I was willing to pay some for my grandchildren, but I don't want to pay for these kids. They don't look like me. So as a result, when, for example, it's time to do things differently in school, they're not interested in supporting the change. When it's time, as it is from time to time, necessary for the schools to go to the community for more money, folks in that category, not all, and I'm not judging, they have a different priority. They're worried about health care and crime because they feel more vulnerable and infrastructure. They want to be able to get around okay. And these issues compete for public funding. So when the school needs more money, it is not surprising that they may go into the voting booth, pull the curtain, and vote no. As a matter of fact, a sizable portion go in, pull the curtain, and vote hell no. Because they've forgotten something. They've forgotten that their quality of life is directly tied to the quality of their local schools. The statistics in this regard are overwhelming. When a community decides that they're serious, and this is a very important question that everybody here and everybody listening needs to ask themselves. When a community decides, yes, we're serious. We want to prepare every child for future success. No more throwaway kids. We want to prepare them all. When a community decides that and they begin to support the schools in a way that shows that commitment, what you find is rising student success. And when it comes to everyone else's quality of life, to those very people who may be inclined to vote no, what we see is as student success rises, the crime rate in a community declines. A one-to-one inverse relationship. When you see student success rise over a period of five to seven years, the tax base begins to improve because businesses begin to accumulate around pools of developed human capital. When you see student success increase, things that you would never think of are affected. Teen pregnancy in a community declines as student success grows. The number of people using the emergency room as their primary care physician, that declines, and we all pay for that when they use the emergency room. We pay for it in our insurance premiums. 
There's a host of indicators that show when a community rallies around the idea, yes, we want to unfold the full potential of every child, then the community benefits. So just when we get to this place where the system needs to change, we find people moving away in their commitment because they've lost sight of the fact that good schools are good for them, whether they have children in school or not. In addition to the demographic change, there's a series of discrete reasons why the public is showing signs of turning away. Some people are unhappy because the kind of discipline that public schools are allowed to administer has changed over the years. We're awash in what some have called the rights revolution, that students now have rights. It actually started in my adopted state of Iowa, Tinker versus Des Moines, 1972, where a young woman from the Des Moines school, uh, school system, a, a, te- a student, wanted to wear a, an armband to protest the Vietnam War. And her principal said, take it off. It's disruptive. Somebody must have had deep pockets because it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, the armband stays. A student does not surrender his or her free speech rights at the schoolhouse door. Well, that just opened up a floodgate of due process rights for students. It changes the way people, the teachers and the administrators discipline. I had rights when I went to school. I did back in the day. I had the right to sit down and shut up. Those were my sole rights. And as a result of this changed environment, as a result of the rights revolution, teachers are looking over their shoulder. Am I going to get sued because I'm taking a stand on this particular behavior? Well, that upsets some people in the community. They want to take their kids to a place where there's more discipline. We have this notion that schools are not safe. Ever since the high watermark of uh, school violence in Columbine, people have this idea that public education, public schools are not safe. That is not true. The fact of the matter is, just as a frightening reference point, The year of Columbine, 1998-1999 school year, 33 school-aged children were murdered inside of public schools. Now, that's horrific, horrific, any child being murdered in a schoolhouse store. But you have to put it in context. In that year, according to the Justice Department, 2,563 school-aged children were murdered in their living rooms in that same 12-month period of time. 7-Eleven parking lots, community playgrounds, in their streets, schools are safe. As a matter of fact, if you actually look at the incidents, if you go down to your local police department and you look at the incidents of juvenile crime and violence, it actually falls as soon as the kids go back to school. School ameliorates the problem of teen violence. Schools are safe, but I learned a long time ago that every now and then perception is more important than reality, and the perception is that schools are not safe. So the people are chilled by that idea, and they have a tendency to take a step back. There's a list. I call them in the book, which thank you for referring to it. There's a list that I call the terrible 20 trends, the reasons why the public is turning away. I stand before you at a time, and I know it's unseemly for a grown man to do this, but I stand before you to beg. The people of the community, 
people of goodwill, people in positions of influence, we have reached a point where you have real power. You have the power to shape the schools of this community for the future. You have the power to move your schools from an industrial model that is serving an economy in which a small handful of thinkers and a big slug of doers were employed to a new kind of a model for educating young minds for an economy and for a society where everybody needs to be well-educated, independent of their jobs. Teachers sometimes get fussy. I'm not just producing somebody for the great economic machine. No, you're not. You're unfolding human capital. Today, even to be successful in your life, to negotiate issues of the law, politics, privacy, everybody needs the kind of education we have historically reserved for the top 30% of the class, all of them. The system that we have right now cannot do that. To use the language of, I was going to say today, but I guess it's of yesterday, Schools that you have here and every place else, and by the way, this is true of almost all private schools as well, public, private, parochial, makes no difference. Those schools were designed specifically to leave children behind. The schools you have were set up to do one thing with a vengeance, select and sort people into two groups, those going on to higher ed and everybody else. One of the telltale signs of a selecting system in an educational setting is that we hold time constant. All the kids go the same number of hours and the same number of days. As soon as you hold time constant in an educational setting, ladies and gentlemen, you are not educating all children to their highest level. You're selecting them and sorting them on the basis of how quickly they can learn. And no one has ever linked the speed at which someone learns with their capacity to learn. Some kids just take longer to learn than others, having nothing to do with their level of intelligence. Some children just take more time. But if they all go the same number of hours and the same number of days, in other words, if we hold time as the constant and we choose to have quality as the variable, then you're going to get a bell curve. A bell curve of student achievement. A's, B's, C's, D's, failure. That's what you're going to get every time you hold time as a constant. Now, some of you are thinking, so what? Some people are more intelligent than others. Some are smarter than others. Really, come on, JMO, get a grip here. All your schools are really doing is we've developed a marvelous mechanism to figure out who's smart and who ain't. That's what our schools do. No, ladies and gentlemen, we've been snookered. We have been taught, not in any conspiracy kind of way, it's just kind of what has been passed down over the years. We've all begun to assume that the grade point averages, the the curve of student grades and the curve of, of human intelligence are the same curve. They're not. The curve of student achievement shows you just one thing, how well you did in school, which is not the same thing as how intelligent you are. How many of you, well, maybe not so many in this August group, 
How many of your neighbors will admit, I did not begin to be successful until after I got out of school? You think that's developmental? You think they got to be 19 years old and went, well, well, there's my potential. I wondered where that was. It's because school, in the words of the former New York State Teacher of the Year, John Gatto, school is psychotic. School favors certain kinds of learners. Kids who are visual and auditory learners have a huge leg up on those human beings that are basically kinesthetic learners. In other words, they have to interact with the problem, mainly touching it if they can. It's estimated that 40% of all human beings are primarily kinesthetic. They get short shrift, not in kindergarten, not in the lower grades. They get to interact. They can play with the blocks. They eat the paste. They're into it. But as they move through the current selecting and sorting system that, in fact, was originally designed by Thomas Jefferson in 1781, as they move through that system, you can see the kinesthetic kids fade to the back of the classroom where they're either bored or disruptive because the system does not talk to the way they learn. We've got this idea that we are very carefully figuring out who's smart and who's not, and all we're doing is figuring out who's good in school, which the way the system was set up, we were preparing those kids for what? For more school. And so the system worked fine. And so when almost everybody in here got out of school, there was some kind of a job out there waiting. Not anymore. Now that society has changed and the school continues to chug away the old system, the industrial model in which time is a constant, in which we, we group kids according to their date of manufacture, in which we teach subjects as though they were completely separate and isolated silos of information as opposed to an integrated whole that creates meaning out of life as opposed to just enough information to get past Friday's quiz. We need to restructure that system. And the one thing I've learned, the one thing I've learned in 20 years on this road is that the people who work inside the schools cannot change the school unless the community lets it happen. Because I can stand up here and pontificate about how the calendar might need to change and how we might rethink how kids do high school and how we have to rethink how we group the kids from the beginning to the end. I can say all of that. And what's going to likely be said, at the risk of being a scold, someplace in the community, at a coffee shop, at an after-hours restaurant, someone's going to say, that ain't the way we do it in Idaho Falls. Because everybody has a model of what real school should look like. And it's the school they went to. That's real school. You have power as individuals and as a group because you can help the people of this community begin to understand we cannot have exactly the same schools that we all experienced and expect these children to be successful in an America that is dramatically changed. You have power by becoming involved in a conversation. I've said it now so many times in the last 36 hours. A conversation that I believe should be initiated by the people who work in the school, 
the board and their allies in the community, but a conversation that goes to everybody in the community of Idaho Falls so that the people of the community understand why we do it this way and why it has to change. So that people in the community begin to trust that the folks inside their schools are really committed to making sure that every child succeeds. That trust has waned for all sorts of reasons. I know it if I just use a simple personal anecdote. I know that trust has waned because when my parents sent me to school, they trusted the teachers. They trusted the principal. And if little Jamie Vollmer had a problem with his teacher or the principal in the day, by God, I had a problem with my mom at night. And the fact of the matter is, an indicator of waning trust is that 8.5 times out of 10, if a teacher has the problem with a child in the day, the teacher has the problem with a parent at night. How dare you reprimand my child? This is a fundamental breakdown of trust between home and school. You have a role in helping to reestablish public trust. You have a role in engaging in this community initiated by the district in helping the community give permission to change, permission to do it differently. And you have a role in helping to build public support for the schools in this community. Dickens said, I'm a big Dickens fan, we share the same birthday. I'm an author. He's an author. And if you've read my book, you know that's where the comparison stops right there. What's Dickens' most famous line, introductory line from one of his novels? It was the best of times and it was the worst of times. From any number of perspectives, it's a very troubling time. Money's tight. The economy is struggling. Massive change is on the horizon. But the fact of the matter is, it's the best of times. Because for the first time in the history of this community, education is the most important enterprise of the public. Every single possible successful scenario for this community is flowing through those schoolhouse doors. And if, if you band together to build a conversation that builds understanding, trust, permission, and support of your schools, then conditions are right for you to create schools that, in fact, unfold the full potential of every child. And when you do that, it means that you will begin to create the communities of your dreams. I stand unabashed in saying to you, public education is a miracle. And if everybody does their part, this is its most hopeful time. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much for those insightful remarks and eloquent defense of public education in this state. As everybody in this room knows, public school teachers in this state, like their colleagues elsewhere, have been taking a public beating for many years, uh, characterized as lazy, uninterested in the genuine uh, development of their students, mired in the old approaches to education. Uh, teachers, in effect, 
have had few defenders in Idaho. And now you come to the podium and mount a very eloquent defense of teachers. What would you say to state legislators who decide to underfund education in Idaho, many of whom do not view education as serving important purposes uh, and, and or an investment in the future of our children? It will win me no friends. Thank you for the question. It will win me no friends in the Capitol. But what do I think about their actions? And I don't want to just demonize your elected representatives here in the great state of Idaho. They have plenty of company across the country, and they are short-sighted and wrong. They are short-sighted because if we decide for some reason that public education is not worth supporting, if some way we're going to undermine that, and some way we're going to expose it to the free market, how anyone can suggest that free market forces would serve education well after the crash of 2008 is beyond me, but the notion persists. Uh, by the way, I'm all for the free market. Free market's been very, very good to me. But the fact of the matter is that public education is the engine for the education of America's youth. And when you begin to tinker with it, for whatever reason, for whatever purpose, in fact, you're cutting your own throat because the schools are absolutely the central focus of unfolding the full potential of every child. When I say they're wrong, they have, again, a lot of company. And, as was mentioned in the, in the introduction, I used to be part of that group. I was sure that we had a people problem. Come on. Everybody knows their nests are comfortably feathered. They don't have to work hard. When the kids leave at 4 o'clock, they're out of there. They're not thinking about it anymore. They get the summers off. They're lazy. They're protected by the monopoly. They got no competition. They're hunkered down. I thought all of that. And then I spent time inside the schools. And I saw how hard everybody was working, how diligently they pursued their own education, by the way, on their own dime, and then I gradually began to realize what is the central flaw, Dave, in the question that you ask. And that is we do not have a people problem as the folks in the state capitol apparently believe. We have a system problem. And as long as we continue to attack the people and blame the people inside the system, two things will occur. One, it takes everybody else off the hook. Everybody else in Idaho can say, oh, well, it's their problem. They're the ones that have to change, not me. So everybody is relieved of responsibility <coughs> for educating their children. And two, as long as they take that approach, the underlying selecting system continues to grind on unfazed, producing graduation class after graduation class that we no longer want or need. Thank you. I want to point out that we have here in our audience uh, the Senate Majority Leader, Senator Bart Davis. Thank you for coming today. And just so you know, Jamie, he's a good guy. He's a defender of education in the state. So I think they're all included. good guys. I That's just right. think they've been confused on a certain point, number of points. Let's turn to a slightly a different issue. Here in Idaho, we often believe that the teachers' union collides with government on issues of education. What are your feelings about teachers' unions? Should they be retained? 
Should they be encouraged to change their approach toward education? Let me say a disclaimer first. I am not familiar with the specific leadership of the IEA. That's what it is here, isn't it? Um, Having said that, I do have relations and ongoing conversations with the folks at the NEA and at the AFT, the American Federation of Teachers, their counterpart. Most of my conversations are about changing the uh, from their side, not from mine. I'm a listener in this. Most of the conversations that I'm privy to are about their attempting to change an institution that grew up and came of age, so to speak, as an adversarial group. I mean, that's their history. That's the cultural DNA of the, the, the associations, the unions. Well, it takes time to make a big change in the culture of a large organization. And at the top, what I find is a concerted effort to move from a culture of advocacy and um, leave it at that, of advocacy and fighting, for lack of a better term, to a culture of collaboration and coalition building. That will not happen overnight. And I continue to think it's part of the people problem that while (laughs) I have met any number of union officials that do have a particularly strong point of view, which I also, I don't think they're bad people, but I think they're misguided as well. Um, I see that the big cultural move is that unions and associations are moving towards a more collaborative mindset. And it's not just because their feet have been held to the fire or they've been threatened with decertification. The people on the top, just like the folks in the legislature, who I can say, I believe, for the vast majority of them, are human beings of goodwill and high, and high character. But it's taken a little while for them to restructure their institution. I've got nothing against unions. Thank you. Now, everybody in this room knows that every be- everybody becomes a public school teacher because of the salary. Yeah. So in your view, how important are teachers' salaries? We're Americans. We show very clearly what we value by what we're willing to pay. I, I don't mean to be overbearing, but the people of Idaho and every other state have for generations said, that the education of our young people is one of the most important priorities of we as a people. And from my perspective, that's never been true. Because if you really believe that, you'd have put your money where your mouth is and funded the system properly. And you never have. While it is absolutely true that many, many teachers do not enter the field because they're going to wind up being the most highly paid person in the neighborhood, we send a signal to our education professionals when our default is to cut as opposed to expand. So I look to the day, perhaps I'm a bit of a Pollyanna. I've used this joke a number of times, but it still works. I may be a bit of a Pollyanna. And if you're my age and you were not hot for Haley Mills when you were 12 years old, there is something wrong with you. But I see the day where what I said at the close of my formal remarks, communities begin to understand that this is the most hopeful time if they accept the idea that the education of their young people is their most important priority. Money is not the only thing, but it's a thing. And while I do not 
want to be like any other country, these mad dashes to Singapore or Korea or the latest fad, which is Finland. I don't want to be like any other place. We're Americans, but I wouldn't mind seeing teachers getting the kind of respect that is afforded educational professionals in some of our international competitors. So uh, a point of clarification, is it okay to still be hot for Haley Mills? Oh, yes. (laughs) You got that right. (laughs) We have have a wonderful bunch of... (laughs) Well, we all were. Yes, we were. We have a a wonderful bunch of questions here uh, approaching the internal dynamics of our schools. Okay. And so let me go down the laundry list. How important, in your view, is classroom size? Uh, Again, a disclaimer. There are people who have spent their entire professional lives and have multiple PhDs when it comes to the internal working of schools. I have none of that. I'm a business person who got his sleeve caught in the great education reform machine and got passionate about it and have been on the road to bring schools and communities together for 20 years. So when you ask me specific questions about the dynamics I am not the guy to look to. I don't mean to wave it off, sure. but uh, it, I have no better opinion than anybody else does on class size. Okay, understood. Now, you mentioned that uh, if we are bound by the uh, concept of, of time constant, mm-hmm. yeah. that that can interfere with the educational process. Yes. And, and so in that way, probably classroom size might have an impact. But, but moving beyond that, uh, do you believe that, that to the Montessori approach of working with students at an individual pace is a, is a much better approach? Yesterday at 4 o'clock, I spoke in, where was I? Uh, in, in one of the junior middle schools. I've lost track. And I spoke to a large group of teachers. And I've done this a few times, so I knew where the hot button was. And in response to that particular question, um, I said, if you follow my line of thinking to its logical conclusion, which is we're no longer living in a society where we can afford to let some kids, A, fail to graduate, that absolutely cannot happen, and B, have them graduate only marginally educated. Those days are gone. You have a choice. If you're going to continue to have a school system that produces students who are unprepared to succeed in this new thing that is variously called the knowledge age or the cognitive age, if you're going to allow that to happen, ladies and gentlemen, you have two choices. You're going to take care of those young people the rest of your lives because they will be functionally unemployable, or you're going to live in fear of them for the rest of your lives because poorly educated people are desperate, and desperate people are dangerous. So we cannot afford to have anyone exit the system that doesn't, is not prepared to succeed. So if you follow that out to its logical conclusion, and here's where I knew the teachers would just about have a stroke in front of me, every single child needs what's called an IEP, an individualized education plan. Every kid, they're all different. I had three children. Why I was blessed with those three, I have no idea, but you couldn't have found three more different kids. They actually would have tremendously benefited from some individualization of instruction as they move through the system. 
so that one of the barriers to that is, in fact, time. Time holds us back. They all go to school the same number of hours and the same number of days. Why don't we change it? We have examples in our lives that we've accepted. Scouting? Kids move through the scouting at their own rate of speed. If they don't get their chip and tote badge when their buddies do, no one says, oh, you're stupid. You've been, you're, you're slow. Nobody cares. They work through, by the way, no number two pencil tests. They show mastery at every step. And they progress as their interests and abilities and energies allow them to progress. That's a perfect example of a place where learning is central, time is a variable, and quality is the constant. They all have to master before they can get their badge. I have two friends who just finished flight school. One is a friend of mine, retired, very motivated, took him seven months, got his license. One is my wife's friend, took her seven years. She just kept on going until she finally proved she could land that plane. I'm not flying with her, but... She got her license. (laughs) Obviously, here we are in an institution of higher learning. Undergraduate school has become flexible. I got a boy in his fifth or sixth year with no end in sight. Why a a high school diploma is the only certificate of learning in which time is a constant and woe to the child that does not finish with the children that he or she started with in kindergarten, they will be socially stigmatized for the rest of their lives. Why don't we change it? Why don't we restructure time? I'll tell you why. What about prom? Who plays varsity? What yearbook do you get? What reunion class are you part of? If everybody's moving along at their own rate of speed, and I'm back to the main point, you can't touch a school without touching the culture of Idaho Falls. And that's what makes change so darn hard. Time is a piece. It affects classroom size. But until we go after that big piece, and by the way, do not touch that first. That's the last thing you want to touch is the school calendar. Continuing with that theme for a moment, what's your view toward the extension of the school year into the summer months? Again, how we approach time. We're going to do it differently. That's all I can tell you. Some districts extend the school year. Some districts, some very innovative places, they actually stop school. They start earlier than you do. They start in the first week of August, and then they stop school in October for two weeks. Really what they've done is they've taken the business idea of continuous improvement, and they've put it in a school setting. Part of the problem with retaining kids, which, by the way, is not an effective approach, But part of the problem with that is we wait until the end of the year in order to make the assessment this kid is just so far back that we can't in good conscience send them on. They stop in October and they stop in March. And there's remediation for kids who need more help and there's enrichment for kids who don't. That's one week. It's a two-week shutdown. In the second week, school's out. It's vacation. Now think about that for a moment, folks. What was the major complaint of parents when that idea was floated to the community? What the heck are we going to do with our kids? You take care of them in October. We don't. Well, so what the school system did was say, okay, we'll do daycare and child supervision 
in every single building in that week. And that's what they did. And after about a year, every single daycare center was shut down. Why? Because the community figured out what to do. For example, if you haven't thought about it, the lines are shorter in Disney World in October than in July. And the room rates are lower. But I raise this particular point again to show you how powerful and how important you are. You can't make a change like that. Your board, your superintendent, they can't unilaterally make a change like that because the community will say, not here. We're all going to have to figure this out with ourselves. And those of you in this room have a role to play in helping the community understand why, maybe, possibly, perhaps, we need to restructure the calendar. Continuing on that theme, we have here in our audience the mayor of Idaho Falls. Would you suggest that he convene the city council and a larger meeting as a means of moving this community forward to promote education here in Idaho Falls? Well, that's a very good question, and I guess my answer is no. And I'll take that 20 bucks you promised me. Um, <laughs> I see this as from inside the district evolving out onto the community's turf at the community's convenience. This has to be a conversation that's taken place in rooms like this, at the Rotary, at the Lions, at the Walmart, at the Lumberyard, at sporting events. Folks need to be talking about this on their turf at their convenience. Part of the problem I've had with the way educators have approached, quote, unquote, engaging the community and again, I'm not being a scold for your people, it's all across the country, is that when an important issue comes up, they decide, oh, we need public engagement, we need you people to be involved, and they have a meeting. Well, I'm not that big on meetings personally, but then they say, where is the meeting? At the school. Well, there are hundreds of people in Idaho Falls. There are thousands of people listening to this who are scared to death of school. They hated it when they went there. It treated them poorly. It gives them the willies just to smell the joint. And so who comes to these meetings? And who would come to yours? The same 12 parents and the one weirdo who comes to all the meetings. That's what I see. <laughs> We've got to take this community from the inside out. It's one more thing. I know that educators, I charge them with a responsibility. But it's them and their allies, as many of you are, in the community taking this discussion to folks where they live so that they can reach the conclusions by themselves. Because if they don't, the district will begin to make major changes. They'll get too far out in front of public sentiment, and the community will come behind them and cut them off at the knees. Thank you. Uh, Idaho is one of the few states that does not fund early childhood education. What's your view on that subject, and how important do you think early childhood education is? I do not have to talk long on this one. Most credible longitudinal studies show the following. For every $1 invested in early childhood education, the community can expect a $17 return over the lifetime of that child. Now, especially as we stand in the recent shadow of yesterday's interesting day in the stock market, you tell me where you can get a 17 to 1 payback on your public dollars. Every state should have an aggressive, high-quality early childhood education program 
the returns to the community are almost immeasurable. Now, here's a question on which I'd like to comment uh, as a university professor. Do you see any correlation between academic achievement and financial remuneration? Sure. I mean, it's, you can just look. The difference between what a high school dropout is likely to make in his or her life compared to, the diff- to what a, a high school graduate will likely to make in his or her life. Then you compare a high school graduate to somebody with two years of technical school and a certification or a trade certification. And then you see how much more someone with a four-year degree makes on average. You're talking to a guy who's spent his entire life savings sending his kid to college and he still eats out of my refrigerator. But, and then you see what happens to a graduate degree. You, on average, make more money over the course of your life with a better education. We have a little bit of a disconnect, however, and that is that we're now sending about 60% of our high school graduates are attempting to get into a four-year university. The economy doesn't need all those kids in a four-year university. So education beyond high school, that is absolutely essential. Whether they all need a four-year degree or not, I don't think that they do. Your remarks are not only going to Senator Davis, but they're also reaching Representative Lindemann, who is also, Lyndon Bateman, who's also a member of the, of the House of Representatives. Glad you're here as well to hear this discussion on education here in Idaho. You've been talking eloquently about public education. What's your view about privatization? With, again, if I'm, you have to define terms. If generally you're speaking that, we, that there's a big move to privatize all pre-K-12 education. Again, I come from the private sector. I've said it once, the private sector and the free market has been very good to me. It's, It's not always clean. It's not always messy. Sometimes it's fiercely unkind. But that's our system of, of our economy, and I'll stand by it. What does that mean to privatize K-12? Less than 25% of the taxpayers in Idaho have kids in school. Less than 25% of the people who pay for public education have kids in school. The benefit of public education is that at least in theory, you can vote for the board that winds up having the fiduciary responsibility to take care of your money and make sure that it's appropriately spent for the purpose of increasing student success. As soon as you begin to break it all up and have for-profit corporations running the system, again, I've got nothing against for-profit corporations, but you lose that connection between the public and in a whole level of accountability is lost in the process. So for example, We're starting to see, because there's all sorts of experiments going on across the United States, private schools, uh, privately for-profit schools, charter schools, and there is an alarming trend that you're starting to see these small K-5 schools where the headmistress is making $330,000 a year. And her brother, who's the assistant, makes 175. They only got 210 kids. But there was a disconnect, and that was allowed to go on. This is in Dallas. 
This was allowed to go on three or four years before somebody said, wait a minute, we're not getting the kind of students that we wanted, and we're spending a lot of money for it. There's nothing wrong with the free market. I don't believe that the free market is the answer to improving student success. We're running out of time. We're down to a, a couple yeah. more questions, Mr. Vollmer. Here's a, here's a fascinating question. Uh, a plaque on the wall in my middle school read, children are not, are not things to be molded, but mainly people to be unfolded. And this seems to capture your own educational philosophy. Mm -hmm. But what about those students at the lower end of educational potential, including students with disabilities? In a world with limited public resources, do you have suggestions on how public education can provide education for those with disabilities? Well, my understanding is, I don't mean to take myself off the hook here, my understanding is just the law. I mean, we have laws across America, IDEA, which have put into place certain things, free, fair, and appropriate, is that the terminology? So that every single child gets what he or she needs. I, I do not believe all children are going to wind up the same. I'm, and I'm glad that this was brought up. I said that we need to go from a system in which time is a constant and quality is a variable over a bell curve to a system in which time, among other things, is changed so that it's a variable and, and quality is a constant. But that doesn't mean they're all going to come out the same. I mean, my kids are smarter than yours. Come on, let's face it. What it does mean is that as a group, we're going to decide this is what every child needs to know and be able to do. And I have a default bias here, which may ruffle some feathers. I think the farther the decision maker is from the child when it comes to determining what they should know and be able to do, the dumber the decision gets. So I think that communities need to re-engage and say, this is the benchmark. You have to look outward. You can't dumb it down to keep your football program going. You have to look and see what these kids will experience as competitors in a global economy and then say, every child needs to have at least this. And it can't be dumbed down. It's got to be rigorous. Many children will go way beyond that. Whether we can get all of them there with serious challenges, that's a question I guess I'm not qualified to answer. We're down to our last question, and so let's take this and give you a chance to make a few concluding remarks. You're looking at a room full of community activists and leaders, yes. eager to hear your words, to find inspiration in your words, to reform education in this community. You've mentioned uh, here today that this is the most important time in America's history mm. to undertake uh, some reformation of public education. Is that in part a function of the fact that the United States in key categories has fallen behind other nations? No, I don't believe that. I'm here to tell you I'm not a psychometrician, which are the folks who study testing and student measurement. So I am have to rely on what I would like to think are insightful, intelligent lay analyses of those test scores. But I think every international comparison is bogus. We are never, ever comparing apples and apples with that. Right now, I mentioned I took a cheap shot at Finland, not that I have anything against the lovely people of Finland, but right now, Finland apparently beats our brains in when it comes to TIMS, which is the Trends in Math and Science Study, which is one of these international tests, and PISA, which I can never remember what PISA stands for. It appears as though we're getting our brains beat in. And as a result, everybody is running to Finland. I, as a business person, would like 1% of the travel budget of the educators who are going to Finland right now. I could retire. 
Well, the fact of the matter is, Finland is beating our brains out when you look at the raw numbers. Why? Well, first and foremost, they're all Finnish. They all speak Finn. Okay, I misspoke. 14% speak Swedish, which is kind of the same thing. We're number one. We're number one. There is a place where America is number one. We're number one in the industrialized world in child poverty, 21%. In Finland, it's 3%. And they have a 2% immigration rate. Now, do you really think it's a comparison to take the children of the United States of America, which includes Idaho Falls, Biloxi, Mississippi, North Philadelphia, and Naperville, Illinois? Do you think that that is apples and apples? It is not. And then when you look more closely, if you disaggregate the numbers, so you see, okay, well, what are certain kids doing? As soon as you start looking at students that come from schools where less than 10% are on free or reduced lunch, in other words, poor kids, when you find schools where the kids are coming from those schools of less than 10% poverty, we beat the Finns every time. There is not an adequate international comparison That's not the driving force. This is the most important point in America's history when it comes to the education of their children because we can no longer compete globally for anything on the basis of cheap. We have one competitive advantage left to us, and it's human capital. And some communities are going to figure out that's what we need to develop and they will thrive and prosper in the 21st centuries. And others will drag their feet and continue to do it the way they've always done it, and they will decline. It's been a pleasure to host you here today. Thank you, Marvin. My great pleasure. Let's give him a nice round of applause. Thank you all so much for coming. Thanks a lot. The impact of 9-11, that's the topic of the next City Club of Idaho Falls Forum this Thursday at noon at the Benyon Student Union Building at University Place in Idaho Falls. The guest speaker, Major General Gary L. Saylor, will address the City Club at noon, that's Thursday, September 29th, on the topic, The Impact of 9-11 and the Response of Citizen Soldiers.